gives way to victory. I'll see the lights of glory. The lights of glory, and I'll know he reigns because he lives. Because he You may be seated. Good evening. You know, uh, whenever I'm away from home, the one thing I care about more than anything is being back home. I've had the opportunity to travel and do some speaking, and while I enjoy those opportunities, I feel that they're a blessing. One thing that dominates my mind is I can't wait to get back home. And the reason why is because there is no better bed than the one that I sleep in. There is no cozier room than the one that is my bedroom. There is no better place on this earth to be for me than on Wagon Wheel Avenue because that's where the people I love the most are at. You see, I could live in a tent or a cave, but as long as Libby and Zoe and Zane and Keely are there, that's all that really matters because that's what makes home home, right? It's the people who are there. There are other places I enjoy. There are places that I love to go and visit. There are places that I even love to come to, uh, like Oldham Lane, week in and week out. But home is where your family is, right? And I agree with Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz. I concur with her statement, there's no place like home. And again, home is where the people you love the most are. And when we go to the minor prophet Zechariah, we see a people who are returning home. And in the beginning, there's a lot of excitement, there's a lot of fanfare, but quickly, that excitement would fade. And what we're going to look at tonight with Zechariah really piggybacks on what we talked about last week with Haggai. Zechariah is sent to kind of play off the heels of Haggai. And if you look in Zechariah chapter 1 and 2, you see the Israelites going home, but God's not just calling them back to Jerusalem. He's calling them back to himself. You see, not only did the people have the monumental task of rebuilding God's temple, rebuilding the city walls, rebuilding everything that was lying in ruins. Their whole lives could really be signified as a building process. They were going to have to rebuild their relationship with God. Let's kind of bring us up to speed to what has happened before now. The Jews have been in exile. They were there because God put them there. You see, because of the rampant immorality, mainly the idolatry and the injustices that were occurring, God sent them into captivity. 
and they would remain there for 70 years. And while the people suffered justly for their sins, God promises restoration. There is a future glory that is on the horizon for God's children, and they were going to go home. However, that excitement, that homecoming would be short-lived. Israel would return from captivity to find their homes in shambles, to find everything lying in ruins. Everything was complete and utter mess. And God's temple was lying in ruins. The people had the monumental task of not only rebuilding it, but rebuilding the city walls, trying to restore the former glory of Jerusalem. And this was a complete rebuilding of God's people as well, as we've already stated. These people needed to repent and restore what had been lost. And of course, they were rebuilding physically as they sought to reconstruct what they once had, but they were also rebuilding spiritually. And things went well in the beginning. As we talked about last week, Israel's rebuilding was moving ahead, progress was being made, but outside opposition thwarted their efforts and construction was halted for 16 years. This was a dark time in Israel's history. There were a lot of dark times in Israel's history, but this was mainly one of them. The people were discouraged, morale was low, the Israelites became apathetic, and so God sends a prophet by the name of Haggai on the scene to encourage, to motivate, to rebuke a little bit as well, and to get them going again. And things progressed nicely. They listened, the people listened, and they started building again, but their enthusiasm waned after only a couple of months. And so now Zechariah is sent on the scene. God calls this prophet to piggyback off the efforts of Haggai to encourage the people to finish what they started. And finally, in 516 B.C., thanks to the efforts of Haggai and Zechariah, the temple was completed. Now, that's the Reader's Digest condensed version. There's a whole lot more that's going on here, but that's the gist of it. And what we see is that Zechariah is at the heart of God's rebuilding. Again, the rebuilding of the temple, but also the city walls, but also the rebuilding of a people. The prophet delivers eight divine visions and two oracles for the purpose of turning the people's hearts back to God. And the thrust of Zechariah's message is that God's blessings are contingent upon man's loving obedience. Zechariah shows God's people what the future holds. And if you look at Zechariah chapter 14, starting in verse 8, here is what we read. It says, and in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. All the land will be changed into a plain from Gibeah to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site from Benjamin's gate as far as the place of the first gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. People will live in it and there will no longer be a curse for Jerusalem will dwell in security. Now there is going to be a day and time where everything is rebuilt where Jesus will provide a fountain which will flow from his pierced body so that all of God's people may have a cleansing for their sins. Christ the King is going to supply these living waters that will flow out of Jerusalem over all the earth. But before that day arrives, there's going to be a long wait. 
It's going to be 500 years. But hey, they've been in captivity 70 years. What's 500 more, right? But Israel is going to sit in time out for 500 years. And she sits in shame and reproach and ruin, wondering when God is going to fulfill his promises. Now, there is a little bit of hope because there is some rebuilding going on during this time, and that keeps the people going. But the main thing that kept them motivated is the promises of God. The mentality of the people can be summed up in Zechariah chapter 1 and verse 12. It says, Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no compassion for Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, with which you have been indignant these 70 years? How long? That is the million-dollar question. The people want to know, how long? You see, the Messiah is coming. His kingdom is coming. With him, a kingdom is coming that will include both Jew and Gentile. But when? The people wait, and they wait, and they wait. You see, the New Testament begins with an assumption, does it not? It begins with the assumption that you know what the prophets have said. It assumes that you know what has happened up to this point. The expectation and the hope that we read about in the Old Testament is what is being talked about in the New Testament. And hopefully you get that. Hopefully you can see that, you can grasp that. Don't let anyone ever tell you that the Old Testament holds no value for us today. Because I've heard Christians say that, and nothing could be further from the truth. The Old Testament has a lot of value. If for no other reason, it is a part of our story. And it's a huge part of our story. And as we have talked about throughout this series, and we'll continue to talk about in our one-word study this year, is that we are a part of this story. The times that the prophets talked about are here. And we're living in them. And you have to have the Old Testament to set all of this up. Because if you don't have an appreciation for the Old Testament and for what the prophet said, then you can't truly understand Jesus and his kingdom and where you fit in all of this. Jesus is the one who was to come, the one the Old Testament prophets pointed to, the anointed one. They point to the one who was to come, whose name is Jesus. And the Jews today, who have dedicated their lives to studying the Old Testament, living under the old law, who cannot see or refuse to see who the prophets were talking about. They're in grave danger. Many claim that he was a good teacher, that he was an influential teacher. But they've missed the boat on who he really is. I think I've told you before that there was a time in college where we visited the Jewish synagogue on a high holy day, and we had the opportunity to ask the Gabbai afterwards some questions. And somebody just said, what do you think about Jesus? And the man got rather terse in his tone. And he said, what do you want me to think about Jesus? I don't know, what do you want me to say? He said, I don't know, maybe he was a good teacher. I don't know, I hadn't read the New Testament. You see, for him, the Bible stopped at Malachi. And that's a shame, isn't it? And it all kind of came into focus what Jesus was dealing with. Those who were still seeking for the Messiah and didn't realize that he was standing right in front of them. Even when he performed miracles and did all these signs to confirm his identity. They stubbornly refused to believe it. And had him put to death, of course. These folks, even today, could be enjoying salvation and kingdom living, yet they refuse. 
They refused to see, even in the Old Testament, that they put so much stock in that the prophets were talking about this man, Jesus, right? The Messiah has come. The kingdom is here, and you're missing it. Listen to what Zechariah said. He said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Is there any doubt as to who Zechariah is talking about here? And we talk about Isaiah being the messianic prophet, but certainly Zechariah could fit that category as well, right? He could wear that label. It is the victorious one, the king of kings, the Lord of lords that Zechariah is talking about. The one who comes bringing salvation, the one the people were looking for. If you look at Zechariah chapter 3 and verse 1, it says, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The people were enslaved. Yes, they were held captive by the Babylonians, but more importantly, they were enslaved to Satan. And the New Testament tells us that all the nations had been given to him, that he is the prince of this world. And Zechariah shows this to some degree. He shows that the world was a slave to the master of Satan. And the accuser says, God is done with you. God doesn't want anything else to do with you. He is finished with you. You are cut off. But God comes to the rescue. Look at verse 2, chapter 3. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? In other words, God has saved a remnant. He is not done with his people. He still has a plan for the faithful ones going forward. And that plan is to bring the anointed one, the Messiah, and to bring the Messiah with him victory. That's what this meant for the people. And that's what it means for us as well. That there is victory. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 reads, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. In other words, Satan will be defeated. He's already defeated. But he will be defeated in the end. No longer will the nations be enslaved to this ruthless master. A new king is coming. And Jesus' mission, among other things, is to destroy the work of Satan. A mission that he accomplished through the cross. Colossians 2 and 15 says, When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through them. Unlike what the Jews believe today, Jesus was not just a good teacher or an influential man. He didn't come to make people moral. God didn't, excuse me, Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. Jesus came to pluck those from the fire. As we talked about this morning in Ephesians 2 and 1, those who are outside of Christ are dead in their trespasses. They are dead in their transgressions and sin. And if you are dead, you don't need a good teacher. You need a Savior. You need resurrection, and only Jesus can do that. 
The Jews thought that the Messiah would come and overthrow the Roman government and rule with an iron fist, destroy their enemies. And, Ju and Jesus came to destroy the Jews' enemy, really everyone's enemy, not the Roman government, but rather the devil, the enemy of sin. Jesus came to set the captives free. So how did he do this? Well, turn over to Zechariah chapter 6. In Zechariah chapter 6, starting in verse 12, it reads, Then say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. So you have two main folks that are leading this temple rebuilding effort. You have the governor whose name is Zerubbabel, and you have the high priest whose name is Joshua. And these two individuals stand symbolically as the one who is yet to come. Jesus is both king and high priest. And he's going to build a new temple. Look at Zechariah chapter 3 now, verses 8 and 9. Now listen, Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you. Indeed, they are men who are a symbol. For behold, I am going to bring in my servant, the branch. For behold, the stone that I have set before Joshua. On one stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave an inscription on it declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. Again, Joshua, as this high priest, stands as a figure of the one who would come, bringing a sacrifice that would deal with sin once and for all. There would be no need for reoccurring sacrifices on behalf of the people, like those offered in the Old Testament. No, the Messiah, who is king and high priest, would be the ultimate sacrifice. Now skip ahead. To Zechariah chapter 13, and verse 1. In that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for impurity. I know we've been skipping around, but are you able to at least somehow follow the line of thinking here, the, the flow of thought? Zechariah is speaking to who? speaking to us. He's speaking to me. He's speaking to you. And it, does that not give you chills? I mean, when's the last time you read the Bible inserting yourself in the story? I'm afraid we don't do that often enough. I'm afraid we look at the Bible as an academic pursuit, or we just check off our, our daily Bible reading, and we don't insert ourselves in the story. The moment you are baptized into Christ and you rise from those waters of baptism, a new creature in Christ, you've been inserted in the story. Who's Zechariah talking to here? This message is just as relevant to us as it was to the Jewish people in that time. The defeat of sin and Satan is coming. God's people were hoping for a defeat of their enemies, although it's not going to go exactly the way they thought, because Jesus is coming to end their slavery. Their slavery to sin, their captivity in sin. Satan has been their master. He's the enemy that needs to be defeated. And Jesus is coming. He is coming to defeat that enemy, to release Satan's prisoners. Zechariah chapter 11, starting in verse 7. So I pastured the flock 
doomed to slaughter. Hence the afflicted of the flock. And I took for myself two staffs, the one I called favor and the other I called union. So I pastured the flock. Then I annihilated the three shepherds in one month, for my soul was impatient with them, and their soul also was weary of me. Then I said, I will not pasture you. What is to die, let it die, and what is to be annihilated, let it be annihilated, and let those who are left eat one another's flesh. I took my staff favor and cut it in pieces to break my covenant, which I had made with all the peoples. So it was broken on that day, and thus the afflicted of the flock who were watching me realized that it was the word of the Lord. I said to them, if it is good in your sight, give me my wages, but if not, never mind. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. So I took the 30 shekels of silver and threw them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Then I cut in pieces my second staff union to break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Any of that sound remotely familiar? And Kind of maybe line up with some other things you've read in the New Testament? Now look at what is written in Zechariah chapter 12 in verse 10. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. What's he talking about here? Jesus would come as king and high priest and he would deal with sin. And he would do it by being struck, by being pierced, by being rejected. Some would reject this good shepherd and therefore he would break covenant with them. He would then open up the kingdom for all who would receive them. Not just those by heritage any longer, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles would be grafted into the kingdom, wouldn't they? Salvation would only be found in Jesus Christ. Now you could no longer count on your heritage, but rather the blood of Christ for salvation. And the people of God, who had so long been protected and sustained, would now miss out on the promises of God if they refused to accept the one who had come, the anointed one. And you know, we see a parallel to what is mentioned here in Zechariah chapter 12 and 10 that we read a moment ago, we see a parallel there to what we read in Acts chapter 2. It's the day of Pentecost. And the fountain has been opened up. It's flowing from Jerusalem just as God had promised. And as this fountain flows freely for all, both Jew and Gentile, we see that many were saved on this day, right? Many received cleansing because they accepted the crucified Jesus as king and high priest. Folks, please hear me on this, because we cannot afford to miss this point. We live in the time that the prophets longed for. We live in that time. What they were longing for, we have now. God's people waited 500 years, and they asked, how long? Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 25. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. 
And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord Christ, the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said these words, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Let's skip down to verse 38. At that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Our king has come. The high priest has come. And he has offered atonement for our sins. Understand what that means. If we show our allegiance to the king, if we show our allegiance to Christ, we are no longer enslaved by Satan. We are no longer burdened by the weight of sin. No more guilt, no more heartache, no more sorrow, no more depression. Because we have a great high priest who continually atones for our sins and brings us to God. And you say, well, Chris, I, I hear you, but I don't feel forgiven. I know that I have a risen Savior. I know I serve a risen Savior, but I just, I've got to forgive myself. No, you don't. And stop saying that. Because but is a vital word, and it is a very dangerous word. Because in my experience, when you say but, it means forget everything I just said. Now I'm going to tell you how I really feel. And I could say, Mike Rogers, I love you, but. Well, what's that mean? That means everything I just said doesn't mean as much as what I'm about to say. Be careful saying that. You don't need to forgive yourself. You need to trust in the Savior who's already forgiven you. Don't say but. Go all in with faith and trust. You have a Redeemer. Christ has come. Think about what you are saying when you say, Chris, I hear you, or, or I understand what the Scriptures say, but... I know Jesus died. I know that he is risen. I know that God sent him to atone for my sins. But, you know, I just really struggle with this. Or, but I, I have trouble getting over this. I've got to forgive myself. No. You've got to trust in the one that has been sent. Romans 8 and 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. Let me say that again. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Are you saved or not? Are you? Do you trust that Jesus came to atone for your sins? If you put on Christ in baptism, if you're seeking to live as a new creature in Christ, then you're no longer under condemnation. Are you in Christ? Do you trust God's word? Do you trust God? I mean, the message of the cross is you are dead, but you can be made alive. The message of the cross is, you are enslaved, but you can have freedom. Pledge allegiance to the Savior. Pledge allegiance to His kingdom. Seek it first. Pledge allegiance to His church. Pledge allegiance to the King and live a life of freedom. Live a life of victory and don't allow Satan to hold sway over you any longer because that's the one who's whispering in your ear saying, yeah, but you've got to forgive yourself. You're never going to be right unless you can forgive yourself. This ain't about forgiving yourself. This is about trusting in the one that's already forgiven you. I mean, what are you saying? Are you saying you don't trust him? That his blood is not sufficient to cover you? You have victory. He's the victory. 
So believe in Him. Trust in Him. Live for Him. And isn't it such a blessing to know that we are living in the times that the prophets longed for? Don't take that lightly. Consider all the blessings that are afforded to us because Christ has come. And as I said last year, uh, last week, not even last week, I talked about it yesterday in the funeral for Benny Whitehead, is that the glorious truth of this life is that it's going somewhere. Trust in Christ, the one who is risen. And if you have a need tonight that we can help you with, if you need salvation and you want to study the Bible and learn more about what it means to become a child of God, or perhaps you've been studying and you're ready to put on Christ in baptism and insert yourself in the story, maybe you need the prayers of this church family, whatever your need is. Come now as we stand and as we sing. Wash away my sin, nothing but the blood of Jesus.